If you have a Bible, you can open to 1 Peter. Uh, we're uh, working through this series called um, Living, Living Faithfully in a Hostile World in the books of James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1, 2, 3 John, Jude are written to a church, to Christians who are kind of living in this time of, of hostility and uncertainty in the early church. And as you're turning there, I think it's just helpful for you to know, like one of the things that whenever we talk about RUF and talk about what our our purpose and mission is on, on campus at FAU. There's a lot of different little little mottos, little sayings, little things like that that we'll use to describe it. But one of my favorites is just to say that we want to be a ministry that's a that's a, a safe place for skeptics. If you're outside the, the realm of Christianity and you're not sure what you believe, we want to create a, an environment where it's a, a place where you can ask questions, where you can dive into the faith, where you can seek to understand what the Bible teaches. Uh, that it's a place that's a rest stop for the weary. <laughs> Sometimes life just is, is, is just wearing and you feel the, the fatigue of whether it's classes or just life or trying to keep up with everything. And there's just something about being able to come and to rest in the truth of the gospel and the reality of God's word for us. So we want to be a, a rest stop for the weary, a safe place for skeptics and everywhere in between a place where you can encounter God himself through his word and through the fellowship with one another. And so that's why we dive into God's word each week. Um, we're looking tonight at 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Let me just read these verses and we will get going. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you don't now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, as we come to your word, we come as those who sit under your word. Father, we come as those who need to be read by your word, that your word is truth and it comes from your mouth. And God, we pray that you'll do the work in our hearts through your spirit, even tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, 
Uh, as I have been reading through this, these verses and, and, and reading through this chapter and studying and, and reading commentaries, the phrase that I've kept coming back to is that phrase in verse 3, that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope, a living hope. Uh, you've heard me say before in RUF that one of my, one of my little favorite phrases that theologians have used from from time to time throughout history, is that we live in a, in a period that's called the already and the not yet. That we live in a, in a time where we've already experienced the joy of salvation. We already have the riches of Christ uh, guaranteed for us because of the resurrection of Christ and his ascension into heaven. So already, if your faith is in Christ, you stand as one who's justified and redeemed and a child of God. Already that's yours. And yet, well, not yet. <laughs> Already that's yours, but we're, we're, not yet, we're not yet there. We don't have yet fully experienced the full joy of the presence of God and the fellowship of the community of believers from all of time throughout all of history. And so we live in this, in this world of, of the already and the not yet. And so Peter is encouraging the church that he's writing to to take hold of this living hope that is theirs. It's, it's a living hope. It's present. It's, it's a reality that's theirs for the for their lives. It's living. And yet at the same time, it's forward thinking because it's a hope as they look forward to the reality that will fully be theirs when their faith becomes sight. It's the living hope of the gospel. What I want to do is dive in tonight and to understand what the living hope of the gospel does, how it enables us to keep our hearts and minds fixed on Christ, even as we face hardships and difficulties in this life, moving forward to the world and to the life in which God has called us to live. So first thing I want you to see tonight is the living hope of God's love. As Peter begins this letter and he's thinking about the living hope, he's grounding the reality of this living hope in God's love for his people. It's almost as if Peter is saying like he wants to have a big, he wants his, his people to have a big vision of God. Like when they look at their life, they, have you ever been on one of those Zoom calls? Like we're kind of Zoom's kind of a thing behind us, but have you ever been on a Zoom call where somebody's like sitting really close to the screen and it's like their face takes up the whole screen and you're kind of like, whoa, back off, right? <laughs> well, in some sense, right, what is Peter saying? He wants the screen of our lives to be filled with this understanding of God's love, a big vision of God's love that takes up the whole corner, the, the four screens, if you will, of your life to have this grand understanding of the living hope of the gospel grounded in God's love for you. Because as he writes to the church, there's almost this sense as, as he knows that our tendency as we take stock of our lives, as we take stock of our lives and where we are and what's going on in our world, we tend to turn in on ourselves and think about the circumstances of our life. How's life, you know, how's life going? How are you doing? And you start to think about where, you know, where am I in my major? Who are my friends? What are the career opportunities in front of me? What are, what's the relationship status? Maybe that's a boyfriend, girlfriend. Maybe it's the, the trials of, of family dynamics back home. We think about all of these circumstances that come in life. And notice what Peter does as he starts this letter. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's taking their attention off of themselves and turning it to God and saying, look at who God is. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Jesus Christ. All of those things in our lives that kind of get us sidetracked and get us thinking about it, they're important. It's not to say that they don't matter, but they're circumstantial. 
And he's grounding our hope. He's grounding the reality of this living hope in the reality of God's love for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason why I believe he does, well, let me, let me before I get to that point, right? Let me, notice what he says about this reality of God's love. Verse three, according to his great mercy, notice it's God who he's talking about. According to God's great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Notice how, who's the author of your faith? It's not you. Your final hope doesn't rest in, and your decision doesn't rest in a prayer that you prayed. It's the reality that God from eternity past reached down and took hold of you, and he has caused you to be born again to a living hope. He is the author of salvation. He's the author of your life, and his love is made manifest even in drawing you to himself so that you could see the hope that is yours in Christ. And the reason why I think Peter, there's a lot of reasons why he does this, but practically, I think one of the reasons he does this for his church is because of the unique circumstances that they're in that actually I think we can learn a lot from. Notice verse 1 and 2. Who's he writing to in verse 1? To those who are elect exiles. Elect exiles of the dispersion. What's he talking about? If you've ever read through the book of Acts, you'll know that as you read through the book of Acts, at the beginning of the book of Acts, basically all of the Christians, all of the people who are followers of Christ, were living in the city of Jerusalem. It's the center of faith. It's where all the community of believers were. But over time, because of persecution, because of opportunities for the gospel, because of hardships, because of all of these different things that were happening throughout the book of Acts, you realize what's happening, and particularly because of suffering and persecution, the church gets dispersed. They get sent. They get spread out. They're leaving their home and having to go and to live into all of these other places and regions and cities around the kind of greater Roman Empire. And Peter, as he's writing, is realizing that reality in their lives. He's calling them their, their exiles, living in these cities of Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. Some of you know firsthand what it's like to be an exile. Some of you know what it's like firsthand to be living in a country or in a city or in a town that's not your home. I spent a couple of, you know, just a, a little bit of time as I'm kind of reading through commentaries and reading through all of these different things. I spent a couple of, a little bit of time just kind of reading through some of the journals that are written by those who have immigrated to this country. And two in particular stood out to me. One who is a, who's an immigrant from the UK, now living in the United States. He says, you know, I, I do enjoy it here. I have great friends. I have great family. But it's not home. The, the, the language always sounds a little bit different. <laughs> the food doesn't quite taste the same as back home. And my heart longs to be back home. Another one I read from a Cuban exile, true exile, not able to return back home because of the situation back home says, I've not returned to the place of my birth. I've never had a chance to go back and visit the grave of where my parents are buried in Havana. And I long to go back to my homeland. Peter's writing to a people who've experienced that reality in their lives. They're exiles physically. But the reality is, it's not just that they're physical exiles, they're spiritual exiles. He's going to draw this out and help us see that that's the reality that we experience as believers in this world. It's sort of like being in exile, living in a land that's not your home. In a world where the customs aren't the customs that you're called to live by. The language is a little bit off. 
and in our hearts we long for the reality to live at home. Do you see why then he grounds their identity to have a big vision of God's love for them? Yes, you're exiles. Yes, you're living in a land that's not your own, but you need to be assured that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is your God and Father too, who loves you. And even as he says, is according to his foreknowledge, has placed you in this world in which you now live. It wasn't actually too many years after this letter that Peter wrote that another letter was written at that time to the Roman Caesar Trajan. If you know anything about Roman history, you'll know that Trajan was not a good uh, emperor. And the letter said this, In every age group, every status of life, both male and female, they are in danger and will be in the future. And what's the danger that they're in? Of converting to Christianity. Trajan received a letter from one of his underlings asking for permission to bring about persecution to the Christians specifically in the city of Bithynia, the letter, the city in which Peter writes about in this epistle. The letter said in every age group, at every status of life, both male and female, they're in danger and will be in the future. This plague of superstition, talking about Christianity, this plague of superstition has spread over cities and over the fields and villages, but I believe its advance can be stopped. And according to God's foreknowledge and Peter's understanding of the persecution that might be coming to those believers, he's writing to them in advance to ground their hopes, their living hope, not in this world, but in the assurance of God's love for them. And so it causes us to ask, what, why has God placed you at FAU? I have to ask myself, why has God called me to be here at FAU? Why has God called you here as a student? You're not here by mistake. Is it simply to attain a degree and land a job and start your career and buy a house and get married and start a family and make some money and buy some toys? Or is a spiritual exile as one whose home is in another world? Has God placed you here for a different purpose, for a different reason? No, I'm not saying drop out. (laughs) Finish your degree. Get married. Buy the house. Have kids. All of that's a wonderful and good thing. But in the deeper sense of reality, God has called you to see this is not your home. We're spiritual exiles. And we live in the already and the not yet longing for the reality to be in our home. I think it helps us understand then as we live in this place as spiritual exiles, why we experience then hardships and why we experience persecution. Peter, like he transitions to that reality for them to understand this. Look at verse six, uh, the living hope of the gospel. Let me say this. If the first reality is he wants them to see that the living hope of the gospel is grounded in God's love. The second thing is to see that the living hope of the gospel is confirmed through suffering and trials. The living hope of the gospel is confirmed through sufferings and trials. We're surprised by suffering. (laughs) We kind of have this sense of like, you know, life, like everything should be perfect. I should get A's on all my papers, right? And like all my friends should just want to hang out all the time and think all my jokes are funny. But the reality is, is like life, life is hard. Life is difficult. And we're often surprised by suffering. But Peter is telling the church, he's telling his followers that through suffering and hardship, The living hope of the gospel is confirmed in these realities. Look at verse 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, the hope of the gospel, though now for a little while, if necessary, 
you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, listen to that, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I ask you, what's making life difficult for you right now? If you had to answer that question, like if you had to write that down and you think about what are, what are the various trials and sufferings and hardships that are going on in your life right now that's causing you to look to God in faith and hope. I know we're at the midpoint of the semester and it's at that point where it's like class feels like it's never going to end and kind of the newness of the semester has, you know, the, the beginning has kind of worn off of the excitement. Um, and it's usually at this point where you start to feel the loneliness and the family struggles and relationship issues and all of the other things that start to attend to the hardship of, of life. Not to mention other things that I know all of you, if you had the opportunity to really kind of explain, you would be really truly feeling the effects. It's interesting that he uses this word in verse 6. That he says, even though you've been grieved by various trials, grieved by various trials, if you go back to the Greek language and you go back to the original Greek in which this is written, that word grieved is talking about the mental effects, the mental hardships that comes with suffering. I find that interesting because a lot of times whenever I've, I, you know, I hear you talk and you, you tell me how you're doing, a lot of times the phrase that we use is, I'm not in a good mental place. <laughs> I'm not in a good mental place. Peter hears you. God hears you. Although you're grieved at the various trials by which you're enduring, it's testing the genuineness of your faith. And he uses this analogy of gold that's been refined by fire. So this summer, I guess, I don't know if I just watched too many YouTube videos or what, but like I, I over the years, Jenny and I, like we've accumulated a, like a number of like sterling silver old hand-me-down like your grandparents like old silverware and it's like half of it's broken and it's not used and so i've been i was watching these youtube videos of these guys that make a a backyard kiln to melt down silver to make silver bars i thought let's do it and so i mean like there's nothing with boys and like we're going to create a fire and so you get plaster of paris and some you know like a a a crucible and some pvc pipe and a hairdryer and charcoal and it's it's we stopped so we didn't end up burning down the house. But, but we we're able to create this kiln where we got this thing so heated in order to melt silver. Silver's melting point is somewhere around 1,700 degrees. And when you get this thing up to the right temperature and start dropping the silverware that we had into the crucible and you start to see it liquefy to the bottom of this, at the bottom of this little crucible, you know what happens is you start to see what impurities were in that silver. Even though it was like 93% pure silver, the impurities start to bubble to the surface. And what's left behind is pure silver. And we stopped, right, after a couple of days of this, because I thought one of us is going to go to the hospital or we're going to burn down the house. This is just a bad idea. But the heat was unreal. And watching this stuff melt and to see the impurities melt away, to be left with something that's pure, 100% of value, was a pretty amazing experience. Peter is writing and saying that your faith, my faith, more precious than gold that's been refined in the fire that's been purified. Well, he's saying there's a sense in which the afflictions and hardships that we experience, 
it has that sort of crucible effect of melting away the impurities and leaving behind the pure, unadulterated faith that God is glorified to see. Verse 7, he says, the tested genuineness of your faith. Last week, a businessman by the name of Andrew Thorburn uh, was promoted to a position that most in his career would, most in his sort of career field would have been envious of his assignment. He was named the CEO of the Essendon Football Club. It's an Australian uh, rugby professional team in Australia. Uh, A man that's been in this business world for his whole life and his whole career was appointed the CEO. He's a Christian. He's a follower of Christ. He's a leader within his church. And within 24 hours, the sporting world was rocked by the scandal that it was discovered that he was a member of a church that has a biblical view of marriage, that marriage is to be between one man and one woman, and that sex outside of marriage is a sin. And within 24 hours was given the ultimatum. Leave the church or resign the job. The choice is yours. And after having this conversation with the leaders of this organization, resigned from the position of being CEO of this football club, of this rugby team, because he realized his faith was of far more value than anything this world can offer. My question to you is this. What does that reveal about the genuineness of his faith? You realize that he'll probably never get another job again at that level because he's been branded. He's been marked. And make no mistake, the president of the club wrote this in response. The reaction from the club members and the staff and the players to the rapid dismissal was positive. I think they appreciated the fact that we have values and that we stand our ground. I don't think anyone's disappointed. There was no hiding the reality that because he's a Christian, he's no longer allowed to have this position. And he wrote back in response to one of the articles where they were interviewing him. And he's just said, they made it clear that my Christian faith and my association with the church are unacceptable in a culture. If you wish to hold a leadership position, in society. He made headlines. Jenny and I had lunch yesterday with a former student of ours from years ago who recently lost her job because the position that she was in as a speech therapist, they were forcing her to sign and to teach in a way that was a direct contradiction to her faith. And she asked for a religious accommodation. I can't do this. It's your job. What do you want to do? And so she resigned. Her story won't make the headlines. But Peter is warning and calling us to see your faith, my faith, of far more value than anything that this world has to offer, is refined in the heat of those moments. And the tested genuineness of it that comes out the other side is of far more value because its result, verse 7, is to the praise and glory and honor and revelation of Christ. The question we might be asking, and it's a valid question to ask then, is like, well, then how can we be sure that this is true? (laughs) 
At some ways, you can see and you can feel the weight of this reality. If this is the living hope of the gospel, and even though it might bring suffering and hardship and trial, how can we know for certain that this is true? And the third thing that I want you to see in this passage is that the living hope, the living hope of the gospel is confirmed in history. The living hope of the gospel is confirmed in history. Look at verse 10 and 11. Peter says that concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. What is he saying? The reality of our faith, the reality of salvation, the testimony of these realities has been confirmed for us through the writings of the prophets throughout all time and history. I don't know what kind of church background you've had or what you've grown up in. There's, there's sort of a, a common experience that whenever you grow up in the church, you kind of have these like random stories from your childhood and you're not really sure what to do with them, uh, except for they're kind of, they're, they're great stories, David and Goliath. And here comes David and he's a little boy and he fighting, fighting Goliath, this giant of a man, and he, and he kills Goliath. And if you're not careful, you might've heard a sermon like this that says something like, well, you know, we all have our giants in life and you have the giant of debt standing before you and you need to sling your stone and kill that giant and you can overcome it and have faith. And, and in some ways, like what I want to say is like, there's so much more to it than that. If you zoom out from these stories, if you zoom out from each of these little individual ones, you start to see what Peter's calling us to see is that there's a faith that's being communicated, a story that's being told throughout scripture that's bigger than each of these individual stories, but to which they each of them give testimony to. What do I mean? If you go back to the book of Genesis, you see that God created the world out of nothing. He spoke it into existence. Everything that we see, the, the sun, the stars, the trees, the land, the water, everything God merely spoke and out of nothing came into existence. But then finally on that sixth day, he creates man and he creates woman. And he says that at the final conclusion of that, that it was very good. He created men and women in his own image. He created them and he breathed life into them. And it was the pinnacle of creation or living in the garden. It's this beautiful picture of man and woman serving and worshiping their God. But then, as you know, Adam and Eve, they, the, the, the first humans created rebelled against God. They turned against him in order to follow their own ways. They decided to turn their back on their creator. I don't know if you've ever had a friend that's turned their back on you. I don't know if you've ever had a friend that's double-crossed you or abandoned you. But the reason why it hurts so deeply is because it's a sin that only highlights the reality of the deeper sin of our sin against God. That when Adam and Eve sinned against God, it was like they vandalized the creation that he made. They ruined the beauty of God's creation. They turned and said, we're going to do it our way, not your way. And the question became then, well, then how is God going to respond? The angels were told in verse 12, long to look into this. What is God going to do? He has the right to bring justice and judgment in that very moment, but instead he brings mercy and he brings grace. He sends his messengers throughout time and history to testify to the reality of who God is and how he's going to redeem and rescue the world. And so he sends his, his, his priests and he sends his prophets and he sends the patriarchs coming to speak and to teach and to tell of God's word. And Peter tells us that these prophets, as they go through their, through their lives, are, are inquiring, when are these things going to happen? When is, when is God going to finally redeem the world? When is God finally going to bring a savior? When is finally the restoration going to come? And how does the suffering of this anointed one fit into the picture of what's happening? 
You see, all of these stories that the prophets tell fit the narrative of how God in his mercy and grace is coming to rescue and redeem a people for himself. You see, the message of David and Goliath isn't be like David. It isn't that you've got a giant of a test this week and pick up the stone of faith and sling it at that test and like you'll pass it and you'll be okay. The message of David and Goliath is this. David was the anointed king of Israel who was overlooked, who, was a, who nobody respected or cared for. And he comes in this moment into the valley of the shadow of death against Goliath, the personification of evil, speaking against the very people of God in order to bring them into captivity and to bring them and to be subjects of slavery to the, to the, to the forces of evil against them. And here comes this unexpected shepherd king not going into the, with the weapons of war, of a, of, a, you know, of, a, of a sword and a shield and an armor, but with a, a sling and stones. And he kills the giant on behalf of the people of God and brings freedom and brings peace and establishes the reign and rule of God. And the question then we ask is, when will there ever be another king like David? When will there be another king who comes and goes to the point of death in order to redeem and to rescue his people? When will there be a king who restores the relationship of the people of God to God himself? And Jesus comes and says, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. That the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep so that they might have life and bring them into relationship with him. You see, the gospels the prophets, the prophecies, the Old Testament is the best attested truths that we have that assure us of the reality of the truth of God's word, of the very presence of God himself. And the last thing for you to see then, if that's true, is that this living hope of the gospel is assured by God himself, that the living hope of the gospel is assured by God Notice in verse 4, 5, and 6, just real quick and brief, that this inheritance that is kept for us is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded by God himself through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. That of all the hopes that you can have, of all of the things that can come of the reality of being a student of FAU, you finish, your, you finish your, your major, you land the perfect job, you buy the dream home. All of those things, as wonderful as they are, are all subject to destruction and decay. Did we not just see that two weeks ago with the hurricane coming across this state? That everything in this world is subject to perishing. But God tells us in his word that our faith is a supernatural faith. That the inheritance that he has for us is an eternal inheritance kept in heaven that's unfading that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and that God himself is guarding you, guarding me, guarding us, even as he prepares to bring us into his presence. It's the living hope of the gospel. It's already yours, and it's not yet fully acquired. But my hope is that as we pursue and we seek to understand even in greater detail who God is, that this living hope begins to frame and to shape each and every decision that we make, that we reach out towards God in faith in every, in every circumstance and in every relationship that we encounter. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, we are so thankful uh, that the living hope that you have established for us through your word 
because of the work of Christ on our behalf, it is truly ours, kept in heaven, guarded for us. And so we pray that even tonight as we consider these realities, that you'll transform our hearts and minds, that you'll give us an ability uh, to truly uh, have a love for you that transcends every experience that we have, even in this life, and that we'll be more and more marked by these realities, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.